Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferrance, and this is episode number 49. I really enjoyed the interview today. I think you will as well. It might have the most information for the widest range of people of any of my episodes so far. There's stuff for players, music directors, artists, managers. It's all in there. So definitely listen to the whole thing on this one. Hopefully you listen to the whole thing on all of them. But first, I wanted to talk about exercise. I know, I know, I know. Musicians don't do exercise. I know. This might feel a bit off topic from our usual opening, but I disagree. I think the positive benefits of exercise are real. They are researched and they are documented and you can't really argue against them. And they will improve your quality of life. And that is really what this show is about, right? So we'll start with a little story. There was once an engineer who loved engineering and loved Pro Tools so, so very much. He spent at least 10 hours working in front of a computer every single day, and an hour plus sitting in a car. He never thought about the ergonomics of his workspace, or stretching, or even getting up. Life was good. Until one day, there was a pain around his elbow, and then down into his forearm, just a bit. Then, it was in both arms. Then, it was there when he woke up, and it stayed all day. Then, months after that, he went to the doctor, finally, to find out that he was working on a nice repetitive stress injury. Yes, we're talking about me. I was sitting with my arms bent less than 90 degrees, it's kind of like a little too vertical, if you can envision that, and basically stretching the funny bone nerve around my elbow. And the specialist I saw was super excited about all this because he wanted to do a surgery that would take my nerve out and reroute it with the rest of my nerves further in the arm so it doesn't go around the bone. And why that was his first idea, we'll leave that for another conversation on another podcast. But in the end, there was no surgery. There was changing my sitting position, taking some steroids, I believe, and then doing some stretches and physical therapy that got this pain to go away. But still to this day, if I work in a poor ergonomic position like that for more than three or four hours, I get all those same pains back and they stay for days. So what's the point here? I know we're supposed to be talking about exercise and here I'm rambling about my elbow. Well, here's the point. I find that generally engineers, producers, etc., we all absolutely disregard our overall health. Partly because there's this no pain, no gain, work yourself to the edge of burnout thing that seems to plague the music industry. So what I'm saying is don't be like me. Don't be 37 with elbow pain and knee pain that came from sitting. If you're gonna get hurt, at least get hurt climbing a mountain or doing a workout. Don't do it sitting. It's, it's embarrassing, really. Flash forward to years later. Now I've prioritized, as best I can because it is difficult, exercising. 
For the last three or four years, I've had some form of regular exercise, and during the pandemic, I actually stepped it up to almost daily. And I guarantee that you will have drastic improvements in your life if you do some kind of exercise. If you've got some computer posture going on, you can fix that. If you ache when you get up, even though you didn't do anything the day before, you can beat that. If you're pissed that you didn't get New Music Friday on your last single, A, don't be. And B, go for a run. It'll clear up your anxiety and your frustration. There have been studies that show significant improvements in patients suffering from depression when they incorporated working out into the weekly routine. See, exercise actually releases feel-good endorphins into your brain. And on top of that, it works to prevent and fight against so many diseases. And I can confirm that all of these rumors about exercise are true. So I just want to share with you what I've found has happened in my life since I started at least getting a little exercise five days a week. I've got more energy, and I don't have aches and pains from sitting in front of a computer. I have less stress and anxiety. I mean, I can't even imagine where I'd be if I didn't run almost every day during the pandemic. I've learned a million things. I listen to mostly educational or informative podcasts at the gym or on my runs. It's a great opportunity to double up your time. If you're looking to learn some stuff and you still want to have time to exercise, but you swear that you're just too busy for both, there's no excuse that you can't do them at the same time. I've also started to get back some of my competitive, never give up attitude that I had when I played sports in high school, especially at the gym. You see those gains that you're making and you want a little more every week or one more rep or whatever it is. And then those things start to trickle into other areas of your life. I always say that the compounding gains of physical activity are the best way to understand the compounding of hard work across the span of your career. This is an opportunity to experience that. I also get a lot of ideas when I work out. Business ideas, podcast ideas, systems and productivity ideas, because you know I'm a nerd. And I think it's actually increased my creativity to a certain degree to get out there and run. And then there's the obvious ones like losing weight and sleeping better. Those are real as well. We all know that. But that's kind of it for today. I just wanted to share with you the positives that I've seen in my life since I dropped this idea that recording engineers are too cool to work out. And I don't think you need to become a gym rat or anything like that, but I do think that there are far too many reasons to not take a walk or light jog a couple times a week. Start small, go a little bit further or longer every week, and you'll start to see things happen. And like everything, once you get started, it'll get easier every time. Smart people who went to school for a long time, called doctors, recommend two and a half hours of moderate exercise or 75 minutes of intense exercise every week. So shoot for finding your way to that. Make that your goal to start with. It's a small amount of time to commit to considering the massive positive benefits that you'll get back. Today's guest is drummer, percussionist, and manager Nick Hughes. Nick is a member of the band Youngblood Hawk, who burst on the scene with their platinum hit, We Come Running. He's also currently playing drums for Bush, and in the past, he's recorded or toured with artists such as Andy Grammer, Bishop Briggs, Puddle of Mud, Emily Osment, and many more. He's played in 25 countries and on every late-night show you can think of. And along with all of that, he's also moved into the business side of music, working in management, and also briefly holding a label position at Big Deal Music. Currently, he is launching his own management and label services company called Artist Perspective, so tons to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Nick Hughes. Hey, man, how are you? Pretty good, man. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, thanks for being here. Of course. You know, I tell everybody, no pressure here, I tell everybody that, like, the best way to describe your drumming is exciting. And uh, I just want to make sure that you're also exciting on the podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can. I'm probably more <laughs> exciting behind a kit than I am in real life as a human. Uh, but, you know, it's okay. 
I'll do what yeah, I can. I'll be energetic. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we've we've done a bunch of projects. We hang out. We're friends. I actually don't know um, anything about how you got started in music. I know you're from uh, Maryland. That's it. That's what I know about you. Well, that is incorrect. So that's a bad thing to know about me. Um, I'm actually from Virginia. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my dad was a musician, not professionally, but he played in bands. He kind of played more guitar and keys than drums. But his band back in the 70s, their claim to fame was they opened up for Iggy Pop's first US tour. And they did their thing. They gigged a lot. But then, you know, he had me and became a dad and was working and stuff like that. But for whatever reason, he didn't sell his drum set when we moved into my house growing up. So my first kit was the 66 Ludwig, you know, solid shell maple. It's probably still the best kit I've ever played. <laughs> and it was just down in the basement. So I just would like play on it since I was, yeah, like from when I was born. And then I just kept wanting to take lessons and I really wanted to learn Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. And so finally, when I was six, like my mom relented. And uh, it was actually a friend of hers from high school was a drum teacher. So I started taking lessons. And that's kind of been it. Uh, I took lessons basically my entire life and then went to school, did high school for marching band, jazz band, went to college for jazz and orchestral percussion. But that's kind of just like the, the academic side, but obviously just yeah. touring in bands and playing in like punk bands and rock bands and ska bands and hardcore bands and just anything that I could do to play live shows. Cause that was always my thing. I just wanted to play every weekend or every week in the summers. That's awesome. Do you feel like you got more out of playing those weekend shows with every band you could versus your education? Or did you find a way to like kind of pick the best of both? Uh, I mean, I feel like it balanced a lot actually. Like I'm not a jazz drummer at all, but it influences, you know, some of the best rock drummers of all time were obsessed with jazz. So, you know, it, it definitely influences your playing. It gives you a little bit more depth and it kind of makes your drumming a little bit more 3D, I think, to study that stuff. And then and then orchestra was huge. I didn't read a ton of music when I went to school, so I just got my butt kicked like the first year. It was just brutal and sight singing all, and ear training. A lot of that stuff didn't come natural to me. But I loved it. Like I was like really into it. And then I would go play every weekend. We would just leave right after my class. The band would pick me up in our van and we'd go play like Friday night in Richmond and then Saturday night in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then Sunday night we'd play Charlotte and then we'd drive through the night right back and they would drive me and drop me off at George Mason where I went to school in Virginia. They would drop me off at my 9 a.m. class and I would just like roll out of the van having slept in the van all night and we did that like honestly most weekends it's kind of crazy like looking back on it but then also the the opposite you know like you can't do anything without the performance aspect like the performance aspect made me a better musician in school just the fact that i was spending all that time like in front of an audience in front of small audiences most times but it didn't matter you know just that pressure of being on stage and and all the other stuff from like routing tours or booking i booked my band for pretty much the whole time like tours across the u.s and nobody cared we weren't doing a whole lot of stuff but it was just a lot of informative things that would kind of help me down the line particularly when i moved to la oh nice i didn't realize you were so you did all the booking like back then it was probably it's probably all phone calls right and sending out it, like press kits 
Yeah, total press kits. A lot of phone calls, although it was kind of right at the beginning of emails. So like some people had emails, but it was like, you know, like the indie Bible and all that. And just like oh, looking yeah. up these venues and just these little like, uh, you know, VFWs and little spots and knowing the kids in the bands that are just throwing shows at these little like halls or whatever, like, you know, just some of it, mostly like just like places that kids hang out, not even you know, the cool venues in town, but it was fun. That's cool. That's cool. Do you have any, um, I never had anybody bring that up before. Do you have any tips for like the guys that are about to jump in the van for the first time and trying to find their way across the country? Like how were you picking artists to hit up and, and stuff to, to open up for and tag team local cities and stuff? You know, we, it's just a flying by the seat of my pants. You know, I would just say, first thing is to just do it. Second thing is to just like, you know, be safe. We used to have a, we were a ska band, so we had horns. We had multiple drivers, but we would do constantly driving through the night. We would never get a hotel. We would crash at people's places, yeah. which was an amazing experience to meet. We still have like friends that we see. And even sometimes on Bush tours, it's like a so-and-so that like just always let me crash from like 2000 to 2004. Every time we were in their town, they would just let us crash on their, on their floor. But, you know, being safe, like we would have like, a rotating driver system to where we, you would know if it was your turn to drive. So you couldn't drink that night and just like little things like that. Like, and it would rotate to where like, if we had long drives, everybody had to drive three hours. Shotgun had to stay awake with the driver. We had like tour books. I was like, totally, I didn't tour manage. I tour managed a little bit for young blood Hawk down the line before we could get a proper crew member, but like just little stuff like that, that I, I kind of learned. But in terms of, the bands and getting shows, that's all just like, go see other bands, hang out with bands, support other bands, and then they'll support you. Some of our friends were like, became big bands, you know, like fast forward to LA, but like one of Young Bloodhawk's first shows, Imagine Dragons opened up for us at um, the Satellite and we became (laughs) buddies. And then, you know, then we played with them a lot down the road. They obviously took off in a whole different level, but you know, you never know who the band is that's going to be rad. And so, yeah. Or do you never know who the person is in the band? There's bands from Virginia that have started record labels and, and done other things that, you know, maybe that band specifically wasn't successful or our managers and stuff. So you never know, man, just be cool and hang out and have fun and support each other. Yeah. The support thing is huge. Like I, I think of all the people that have supported me on this podcast and like all the, the younger artists that I've met over the last few years. And I guess just it's just fulfilling both ways, you know, like if you're helping somebody else out, they're helping you out. And like you said, one day somebody might be in charge of something important and you guys were buddies, you know, there's always that you never see like a behind the music or even like a fortune 500 company. You hear these people talk that are successful and they're never like, yeah, I just did it myself, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like even the most egocentric person like it's just like no i like have this there was this step and this step and this person introduced me to this person and it was like you know so that's just how life is so yeah i think you just approach it like that and and you know in it for the greater good of everybody sort of thing yeah well it's just that that's the part of the story that's that's not cool so it always gets left out and like the uh the glory you know like overnight sensation like they leave out the first five years of that overnight sensation yeah so How'd you get to LA then? Did you come to LA with one of your one of your bands from Virginia? No. So my band in Virginia in 06, we toured and it was just 
like we've been doing it for a long time. We played 150 shows every year. Um, we were just like, at that point, most of us were out of school from like, say, 04 to 06. And we were just grinding. And our guitarist quit the band. And it was kind of a blessing because I was just too far into it. I probably never would have quit. Like I'd still be doing doing it probably today. But when he quit, it was just like, well, I want to do music. So where can I go do that? And I had two buddies that I had known from Virginia, Corey Britz, who is a mutual friend of ours, actually yeah. how we met, and Justin Derrico, who, you know, we all always hang out in the studio together. That's right. So, yeah, so those two dudes had moved to L.A. And at the time, I think they were playing in the band The Calling. And they had just moved out there with their band, but that kind of didn't work. And then they had started playing for hire and all that. And it, that just sounded amazing. So I, uh, I just, I, I moved to LA pretty, pretty like, it was like three months later, I just moved to LA. Threw the stuff so, in the, in the van and left. It was like, yeah, like clothes and drums in my little scion. <laughs> just cruised. <laughs> that's cruised across that's the pretty country. small. You probably had to put the clothes inside the drums just to get it all over there. It's surprisingly efficient. Oh yeah, for sure. There was clothes in the bass drum, a hundred percent. Well, you know, I it just it crossed my mind because you just mentioned it, like you know, playing and supporting each other in your your local band community. I mean, you're playing in Bush with Corey now, like what, fifteen years after you guys met, like playing yeah. local bars in Virginia. I mean, that's like the perfect example of like you just never know like what's going to come from hanging out with your buddies. It really so. is. I mean, it's so funny because. And I, I'm pretty sure that the first Bush gig was the first time I've ever played on stage with Corey. Oh, actually, really? we did one little thing before. But yeah, like pretty much like <laughs> we've been friends. We've been in the studio. We've jammed like Justin, Corey and I like just always like hanging out. But we had never. Yeah. So it took like whatever. I had to be friends with him for 15 years or something to do to, to do a gig <laughs> with him. But <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So. You know, this is something that I don't know anything about. So you can you can really say anything and I'll believe you. So you showed up in LA, you wanted to get into the paid like sideman touring thing. Like where do you start when you're in that spot? Like you have to go to auditions, right? You got to find find the bands. Like how do you even begin? Yeah, so I mean, it's constantly kind of evolving. There's apps and things now that exist that didn't, but at the time it was just like so there was there is a, a legendary kind of music guy, Barry Squire who who's at MI, but he kind of puts together bands and he just kind of has a roster of musicians. And then when artists and labels come to him to put together bands for their, for their artist uh, or band, he just will like kind of call you and be like, Hey, we have this thing. It's, it's tomorrow. There's three songs to learn or it's next week. Would you be interested? And he's been great. You know, he's kind of transitioned a little bit more over the years into just teaching and, and the mm. MI stuff, but his claim to fame, like he kind of really got started. He put the Alanis Morissette band together with like Taylor Hawkins and stuff. So oh, okay. um, uh, that the way I understand it is that was kind of one of his first big things. And everyone was just like, oh, Barry knows all the musicians. So there was definitely like a, I was like texting Barry because I got his number through Corey and Justin. And I was texting him, telling him I lived in LA, even though I hadn't gotten here yet, which weirdly didn't work. But then when I finally got here, he texted me back and I got some auditions through him. The Andy Grammer gig that I did ended up doing was an audition for him. Although Andy was just on Andy label at the time. He was very much still Andy and the success we now know, but not there yet for sure. But yeah. And then in addition to that music connection, 
which I don't know if that's really that much of a thing anymore, but, and then Craigslist Oh yeah. and then just going to shows and meeting people, you know, almost every gig I have, I'd have to think about it specifically, but it's like, I could tell you who referred me to that situation or whatever, you know? So that's cool. It is a lot of relationship building, like every other aspect of the music business. It's all about the community and being the guy that somebody knows is dependable. Yeah. Yeah. And showing up and then, and, but I mean, to be fair, I didn't get callbacks or like I got, I was fortunate that I got a few of the Craigslist gigs pretty quickly that were like little, like $50 for a rehearsal, hundred dollar gig things, you know, right. um, not glorious, but also like really great artists and people that like, I mean, I'm so thankful for because I never, I was fortunate to not have to get like a waiter job or anything like that. And I really wanted to not do that because I wanted to spend, spend all my energy into focusing on music. And it was not glorious in terms of like, you know, making it through those first couple of years. But after about two years, I would say that I finally started to understand the processes of auditioning, you know, just how to kind of act and be cool, how to make sure to really learn the music and kind of read between the lines with what people say that they're looking for. Cause it's not always, sometimes there's a non-music person sending the email with what they're looking for. Yeah. Doing the homework of like the vibe and what, how you want to dress and all that. So there's kind of a little bit of an art to it, but I think I just got, I also like, there's just another level in LA. So I got, I kind of like my playing just had to like, I had to play way less notes and just focus on the song, you know, stuff that when I was in my own band, I created my own parts and I didn't necessarily have to know. So, but it was fun and, you know, it took some time, but obviously it, it kind of worked out. Yeah. Do you have any tips or, or anything that you think kind of like separates you? Because if you're in a town like LA, I mean, all the people going to these auditions are probably qualified enough to get the gig. So there's got to be, there's got to be an X factor. Do you have any, any tips for how you might be able to tap into that X factor for a kid looking um, to get his first gig? Yeah. I mean, I think just being cool helps because if you think about it, like if the drummers are equal, I want the person that I'm fine sitting in a bus with for 15 hours or in a van with for 15 hours or sharing a hotel room with, you know, yeah. so I don't know how much of a, that we can control about each other, but like, if you're pretty easy going and like understanding that, you know, no matter how big the artist is, there's just going to be hiccups on tours and all that sort of thing that if you can just be cool and kind of roll with it and just, you know, that, that can help. And then in terms of the playing, just do tons of homework because there, you never know. There's an amazing drummer, uh, Jimmy Paxson, who plays with Stevie Nicks and Dixie Chicks and a bunch of great artists. He's an amazing drummer, but I I'm friends with him on Facebook and he posted this thing that really stuck with me, but he was like, when you're auditioning chart, the song, play the song with the chart, play the song without the chart and play the song with only the chart, not listening to the music. And then, and then he's like, do both without, you know, do with, without the chart, obviously. And then without the song, just like the, the point of it was to know the song so much that it doesn't matter what happens because the audition can be, can pretty crazy. Sometimes the artist doesn't sing. That happens almost all the time. Oh, if wow. there's not playback, then it's like, oh, I was, I didn't really, I thought I knew this tune really well until I don't hear the vocal cues that get me from section to section. So, <laughs> or, or, you know, or the bass player or guitar player playing with is like really not amazing. And they are like, and you're trying to hold on to like, there's a little bit of control with the drummer, I guess that I can kind of hold down. I've also had like friends like, that are bass players and guitar players that uh, when they audition with a, with a drummer who doesn't know the song, it can be 
really hard for them to to shine you know to like prove that they do if if oh, yeah. the, if it's falling apart sort of but so just really know it because it's always going to be the audition process is just stressful you're not going to play as good in the audition as you do at home so you need to make sure that at home you're like 110% or you know so that when you come down a slight slightly because uh, that's natural we all do that so that you're still kind of good enough and can hang in there and then and then for that, it's just like, don't be, don't be upset if you don't get it. You know, nobody gets all their auditions. It's like, it's like yeah. if you're a three, bat 300 as in, as a baseball player, you're a hall of famer, you know, that sort of thing. Like just have that mentality because it can be hard to like really want something and then not get it. So, you know, you just got to have confidence and, and hang in there. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Dude, I never thought about the singer not singing, probably because they want to watch, or the fact that everybody in the band is auditioning. Like In my mind, I was like, oh, you're the drummer, you're filling in for somebody else. The whole band that knows the, the music is going to be playing with you. But yeah, you could be in a situation where it's four people that have never played the song. Oh, yeah. You're kind of left up to what you're surrounded with at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. If the drummer gets lost, the bass player and the guitar player are screwed. Yeah. That's it yeah, can be I, tough. Yeah. Obviously, I, I have no experience in that world because that just dawned on me as like a potential disaster. But that's actually really great advice for anybody that wants to be a player. I think that that was good. Actually, one other thing, just because something that helped me out with the Bush gig, one thing that I did that really helped is go on YouTube. If if the person has performed before, go on YouTube and learn their live versions as recently as possible. Mm. So I think one of the things that helped that gig is that they had shows coming up and I literally learned exactly like, you know, they play come down. It's longer, there's extensions, there's, you know, cues and there's outro stuff that kind of like as hits that retard I mean, I knew Corey, uh, but, you know, like I hadn't ever played that band. Like, I think he was pretty nervous too, like I was, but uh, I just did a ton of homework and it was kind of like, I could feel like the management in the room that was just like, oh, okay, we made it from start to finish as we do in the show. And they could just see that, like, we could go do a show tomorrow sort of thing in that sense, yeah. you know? Regardless of there was like a lot of great drummers that auditioned, but like, you know, just I think that if you can provide them to where it's like, well, he can get the job done, you know, you don't have to show them everything you can do in that first moment. It's about just executing the job and keep that train rolling, especially yeah. in situations like that where there's shows booked and they need somebody to help out. So, well, in that situation, did they tell you like, we're going to play come down? the like live version this is where we repeat or did they just say hey we're doing come down and no. and you just played you followed yeah yeah no no they don't a lot of times they'll forget that stuff and, and in right, fairness they're playing it's easy, it all the time know, <laughs> yeah they don't even think about it so yeah. it's not like a knock on that situation i mean you know i was fortunate to know Corey, so i text him I was like hey and especially once i started diving into that i was like hey i'm not seeing uh 
you know, a video of little things since like that South America tour you did, is this, do you still playing this the same way? So he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And just asking in the moment, you know, in the audition, like you don't want to be too crazy and be like, Hey, what are we doing over in bar eight or whatever? But it's like, you know, for Gavin, I was like, Hey, that's a vocal cue. Right. So I just wait until you cue it. Are you going to cue it today? And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay, cool. So just trying to do that. And you know, that doesn't always go as smoothly as I'm making it sound, but you know, (laughs) just doing as much of it as you can, you know, definitely had train wrecks where I like walked out, like "Mm, did not get that. That did not go well. (laughs) You know, but that's, that's good. Well, that that's all really that's all really good advice that nobody on the show has has had to give. So I appreciate that. That's uh that's good. Let's do um, let's get into Youngblood Hawk. How'd you end up in that band and playing with those guys? So, um, kind of a long story there. I have always kind of there was just a lot of work in South Bay, which is an area just kind of south of LA by Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach area and i've always just kind of played i met some musicians down here that are all fantastic and so i've always come down here and played uh local bars in between tours and and before i even was like really getting tours i would play down here so i met a few musicians down here and we opened up for a band called igloo and hartley and at the time they had just signed with i think mercury in the uk and they ended up having a top five hit in the UK. And I was friends with those guys just from hanging out at this show. I was playing with a, like kind of a singer songwriter that was different sounding than them. They were kind of like party dance, kind of like sort of rap situation. Anyways, long story short, I almost kind of joined the band or started touring with them. Not, I wasn't in that band, but in the beginning, but then they ended up finding a drummer. Fast forward years later, they needed a drummer And so I did a few European tours with them. They ended up having a top five hit in Europe. They did well in the US, but not like that. So I did a tour with them and then played Coachella with them. And then that band kind of broke up. And Simon and Sam from Youngblood Hawk were in that band. So I roomed with them on the tours and we just kind of hit it off. And they were like, hey, we're starting, you know, there was some time in between. But after that band broke up, they're like, hey, we're kind of starting a project, would you want to be in it? It ended up being kind of a band situation, which wasn't what I had been doing, but the music was just so great. I loved it. And thankfully things happened pretty quickly. So it just made sense. I was touring at the time with Emily Osment, who I love, and she's like my little sister and she was super supportive. I I didn't leave her project, but I would like sub out a few shows here and there if we were like in the studio to record. And everyone was just pretty cool about making it work and and honestly emily is an actor too so when she kind of came off the run of doing her music project where that kind of like was ending youngblood had just gotten signed to republic so it was kind of like it was very great timing for me at selfishly but yeah so (laughs) so that's how i joined just like knowing those guys and rooming with them and then we just played and then yeah that was kind of it we were off and running from there that's awesome. Did those start to become the biggest shows you were playing at the time? Like biggest venues and biggest audiences as, as like uh, We Come Running started just killing it? I mean, sort of with Emily, she had played like really big shows. Like uh, we did some radio shows with like 25,000 people and I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Oh, wow. And then with Igloo, I had played Coachella. Oh, right, right. So yeah. I had done a few things, but, and Youngblood wasn't, like we had never played We Come Running as a band when 
K rock <laughs> played it and then added it. And then it was like this whole thing. And we were just like, what's happening. This is crazy. It was literally like that thing you do. Like I remember running down from my apartment to listen to it in the car. And then within like two hours, we were all like in silver, Lake having margaritas It just like, and then it was like, <laughs> Oh, awesome. K rock added it. K rock added it. And then like, we're like four margaritas in like, we should probably play it because it was the newest <laughs> tune. It was like one of the later tunes to the record. So we're like, we should probably learn this song. That's amazing. Because we were definitely a studio band and Simon produced most of it. And it was just, we did everything in his apartment and then we would just go do drums last, which I actually really loved that process to being able to kind of like hear the final product and then just jam down on live stuff. But we would do it at NRG or Village or whatever. We we would just go do drums there, but everything else was in his apartment. But that's awesome. Yeah. And then the shows were, the shows were, again, it wasn't that glorious, even though like We Come Running was on the radio you know, there's, there's a process for that. So we were in a van, like a sprinter van. It wasn't quite like my Virginia days, but you know, we were like driving around, opening up for like passion pit and clubs and just doing radio hits. And, you know, it's one of those things where we were radio bands too. So like you could tell where the song was doing well at radio. And then we'd like, (laughs) it'd be like awesome. We'd be nuts. And then we'd go to like, we played Sacramento to like three people, even during this, it's like charting or whatever. <laughs> so, you, you know, like you have to like be, it's never like this perfect steady rise, you know, there's all these little peaks and valleys. So, um, yeah, but yeah, eventually we were playing radio shows that were just nuts and it was just like, it was just awesome. We opened up for panic of the disco and then, Oh, we actually opened up for pink in Australia, which was like a whole other level of like, what are we doing in a stadium? And oh yeah. It was amazing. But, but yeah, it was fun for sure. And for anybody that doesn't know, Pink slays it in Australia. It's just like stadium sold out after sold out after sold out. So it, that's it was epic. the coolest. It was the coolest thing because yeah, so she does like ten sold out stadium shows in each city. So we were there for a month, and we only opened for her in Sydney and Melbourne. But like right. we lived in those cities for two weeks. It was so neat. It was literally and like you know her whole operation is just amazing everyone's super nice she's rad and so like our stuff is just set up every day there's no load in or load out so we're just like i literally walking into like this arena like at six <laughs> o'clock sound check at 6 30 we'd play it like i don't know eight or something like that you know it's awesome. it was like a job sort of just like clock in just see you later tough yeah. job yeah that's uh that's awesome we could obviously we could keep going talking about your tour stuff and you know young blood you were playing with bishop briggs for a while when she was like popping off you've done a lot of or a fair bit of md work as well music director for people that are unfamiliar mm-hmm. can we talk about that for a second since i don't get a lot of mds on the show yeah um, of course did you do more MDing in bands that you were playing in or more MDing for bands that you were not playing in definitely more bands that i was playing in and it kind of happened gradually so with the Emily gig was the first time I was running playback. You know, I'm sitting next to the, the, it was pro tools at first and then went to logic and then eventually settled into Ableton. But, and I had, I knew nothing about it. I literally had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Playing to a click was fine. So like once space bar, you know, but if anything like didn't work, it was like, it was a nightmare to be honest. Um, and so I just really dove into that world. And now like I do a ton of recording. I mean, you know, I'm not you for sure, but like I can edit a little bit, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing. But yeah, so at the time it's it was just learning on the fly. 
And then, but then just making sure everything worked. And then that gig was, I mean, was so amazing for me because then her second record had a lot of drum electronics. So then I had to learn how to incorporate that. We had an amazing MD as well. We, we had multiple MDs on that project that were great initially. Um, and they were great the whole time, but they were with us initially. Um, but Matt Mitchell, who is in the band Pussifer, and he works with Trent Reznor a lot. He actually engineered the new Halsey record. Um, but he was, he MD'd the project. And like, we were just, I was working with him a lot in the studio. Like I was kind of just the, the oldest guy in the band, the guy who kind of ran some of the gear. And so I was just in there and just asking him questions. And I learned so much about, you know, programming the drum electronics and, and what to do for playback, how to approach it. Like, you know, just getting stems from labels, what we can need, what we don't need, how to like keep certain things on there. If you want to unmute it, if somebody's not in rehearsal or the singer doesn't want to sing, you know, just like how to approach it. Yeah. And so it really was bands that I was in and a quick aside, but in terms of my whole career, I always think it's funny that my career is always like what I think is the weakest part about what I know how to do is the part that my career goes to that path. I like legitimately like feel that. So like at the time, like, what do I know the least? Like Pro Tools. Okay. You know, like he has to do this now. Like that's your gig. And then it's yeah. like, oh, we can't keep having these MDs come. Can you just sort? We have like two new tracks. Can you handle putting it in there? You know? And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. You know, figuring it out as I go. And yeah. then fast forward to the drum electronics, you know, I had done that on the Emily gig and I'm skipping around. I had MD'd a few projects in between there, but fast forward to the Bishop Briggs. When I went to interview for that, I actually said, I was like, well, we'll get you a great drummer. And this is how I would approach everything. You know, I would trigger with this or Ableton or, you know, main stage, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, you don't want to play drums. And at the time I was like, literally just about to have my daughter. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Well, I can play a few shows to start and then, you know, just around LA. And obviously she's amazing. She's rad. Like in eight months, we were opening for Coldplay at a stadium. Like she signed, everybody was at the first show and signed right away. And it was amazing. It was a rad experience. But but now I'm on stage with no live drums, all electronics in a situation that I have no idea what I'm doing. So fast forward to that whole thing. As that project was kind of like, they were swapping out the team, I got asked, and this is kind of a little bit of a segue into the the management stuff, but as, uh, well, or maybe we should just focus on MD stuff. But <laughs> so, but yeah, with the MD thing, it's such a like varied gig. So I've done it with artists that I haven't been in the bands with and including like kind of putting together bands, like similar to what Barry has done. I did a little bit of musician referral and actually use Barry in some instances, but yeah, MD work can be everything. A lot of times nowadays it, it includes it's the bulk of it is setting up playback and building out the track system. But, you know, historically too, it could just be rehearsing the band, getting the most out of the players, make sure everybody's playing the right parts and, and kind of maybe writing intros or outros, um, whether that's on tracks or whether that's like getting the band to kind of come up with something to transition. But, but yeah, that, that's a fun process, but it it kind of built out and, and I've done a bunch of bands that I haven't been in, but it kind of all stemmed from stuff that I was in the project. And it was kind of just like, well, nobody knows how to do this. Let's like, I just kind of tend to hop in. I kind of tend to do more than I probably should with most projects, but it's been a great way to learn, you know, like I love being a part, like the Bishop Coachella set 
and like the Youngblood pink set is just like, or, or anything that with Bush, but it's just, I love, love, love being a part of like something on stage when everything is just so high quality with yeah. like video walls in the back or like with Bishop, even when we were doing clubs, we had this like light show that we traveled with that we were setting up ourselves that was like MIDI timed to everything, to our whole set. That's so awesome. it just looked rad. I just, I just like the, I love production and I, I just like being a part of putting on a rad show. So I just like, if there's anything like, you know, I learned how to do some of the whatever interfacing with DMX cables and just getting some of those like kind of more baby lighting rigs to where, you know, up and coming bands can do that stuff. I just, you know, and I don't, I'm not an expert on any of it, to be honest. I kind of, but I just, I like to learn about it and just to know enough to where we can hopefully take that next show or that next artist show to that level. So, yeah, people go to a live show to see something different, you know, and it's especially in the world of, of tracks, which I'm not opposed to. Like I'm, I'm all for you. Like you say, like the, the most high quality, best version of the, of the thing, but like you're there for an experience. And so those intros that are being made, the, the visuals that are timed to the music, the, all of that stuff, like that's what separates the great band from the good band. Yeah. A hundred percent. If I remember correctly, when you were doing the Bishop gig, you guys were like doing your own like monitors, right? Didn't you guys have some like system that you put together that was just like plug and play? Yeah, we were all self-contained. So a lot of times with with acts that are coming up, you have like a front of house TM, you know, and that's it. And so that's really all we had. But we were doing some pretty adventurous stuff to where, you know, Mark Ian and I and and, and Dan, who is our tour manager and and even Bishop, she like how like it was like a all hands on deck. Like we were like setting up like all this lighting rig and like we had a few production elements. There was like kind of like this like sign that said Bishop that had kind of like her caricature with like the buns and all that stuff, like yeah. the little logo thing. Yeah. So we just had we had kind of yeah, we had all that stuff. But we yeah, so I mean having a monitor guy is is crucial. But for us with being so electronic that gig was so particular that if you can't hear like for me personally, I'm like, Oh cool. My monitor's out, but I'm kicking a real bass drum or a, you know, like an acoustic kit. Like if it goes, I can at least still hear myself. If yeah. the monitors are an issue, I have no, I, I can't hear what I'm playing because I'm all on pads. Um, I built out the kit a little bit later to where we incorporated some live elements, but for the most part, the bulk of what I was playing that entire time was on, on SPDSX and all these external triggers and all this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So we had just a little self-contained monitor rig. It's just a rack mount Mackie, but it has an app and the thing was like so sturdy and not that expensive. You know, we had, you know, wireless transmitters and receivers and we were just, you know, you just do your mix like Bishop. She's just sitting up front. Like I need to hear a little bit more of this today a little bit less of this, like everyone's kind of handling it on their own or we could handle each other's if it was just like, Hey, I don't have my phone. Can you yeah. turn up this? And we just do that. And, um, it's, I mean, I think it's a great way to go out because it's a lot to ask. Like, it's easy to be like, Oh, the monitor guy sucked or whatever, but it's like, it's a lot to ask for like somebody, your input list is like massive or, or it just says tracks, you know? And then like yeah. this poor guy or girl is like, I don't, what is, like turn up thing and you're like you're like this pointing this over there turn that up this over there you know like if you're playing it's like a lot to get so i think 
you know, until you have, until you reach another level, those type of options, if you can, if you can have a rig like that are just are crucial to, to make it, to make it more enjoyable. And you're not putting somebody in a position to where they're, they're really like just hanging on for dear life. And yeah. <laughs> some, some house monitor guy just gets your 48 channels of tracks that are labeled audio one through 48. Exactly. Yeah. But as or a like professional had, MD, like, you kick, would never label things like that. You know? Yeah. We've all been there. It happens. Just get it out happens on the road. The we'll, lab- we'll label the snake when we get to the first show. <laughs> uh, it's four that's in the morning. We got to go. The flight's at seven. Let's just go, go. That's that's um, amazing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, your MD work kind of like that transitioned you into your business and your management roles. How did that go down? So when I was out with Bishop, we had been going for a really long time, and. You know, like I said, I had my daughter right kind of as that was starting. So, you know, almost two years later, I was kind of approached with putting a band together for an artist named Mondo Cosmo, who is on Republic. And his manager was Youngblood Hawk's manager, who has now become uh, my good friend and mentor um, on all things music business side, but Stephen Melrose. And so Stephen called me and and it was kind of tricky I would never say that I was really the MD of Mondo Cosmo, but I did help. Like we had some auditions on the days when I was home from Bishop Briggs tours, but luckily we found a keyboard player, James, who could handle all the MD work. So I was like, okay, cool. You're him. And then we found the rest of the band to put together for Josh for Mondo. And, and then kind of just in doing that, I had everybody's phone numbers. So Steven was like, Hey, we got, you know, whatever some, he was just starting out too. So it was like, Hey, we got a hotel cafe show. Can you, um, we need to set up some rehearsals or whatever. And so I just would email the boys. Um, I advanced the first few shows I created a little stage plot input list sort of thing. And then kind of, as that was going while I was still touring with Bishop, he was like, I need some help with this. Would this be something that you'd be interested in doing? I'm not, I don't know really calculated person. These opportunities just come, you know, it's like, Oh, I learned pro tools. I learned some electronics. I can handle playback. I guess I'll MD now. You know, and then this thing was just like, Hey, somebody's asking me to do some management stuff. That sounds fun. Let's do that. You know? So I was doing day to day for Mondo Cosmo for while I was on tour with Bishop and I was learning a lot and it was great. And Mondo had a lot of success. He had, uh, his song shine was number one, uh, on triple a radio and he was touring, opening up for Bastille and spoon and Vance joy and all this stuff. And it was really awesome. You know, sometimes during the day I'd be on, uh, you know, not Zoom call, but just like, you know, whatever calls with the label, the, you know, Republic who, you know, the radio team and all that. And, and then I would go play a show at night. And then, you know, after the show, while we're going in the van, I'm just responding to some emails and just taking care of some stuff. And it was just a fun way to kind of, to do it. And then her, her kind of crew, she ended up switching out a lot of pieces for her team. And I was going to kind of be the only person left. And at that point, Stephen Melrose was working at Big Deal Music. And he said, you know, hey, would you want to to come here and try this? And I kind of wanted to be home for a little bit at that point. So I left the Bishop Project and I started at Big Deal Music. And it was my, still to this day, my first and only like day job, you know, like you go to that place every day. And it was super creative, you know, you weren't, we weren't always in the office. So it was like, it wasn't like a full on office thing, but I mean, for a lot, we were there. Kenny and everyone there was, was so amazing. It was like, 
really fun. And it kind of like, it taught me a lot about the other side. You know, it's easy for us as artists and musicians to be on the road and just be complaining about whatever's happening or not happening on the other side. But then when you sit in the other side and you're in this office and there's 40, 50 people that are all working, having meetings and doing these things to try to get good things to happen or to make artists bigger, you know, just like if you can understand that, oh yeah, like, you know, Steve down, down the hall, like he's, you know, he's 50, he's got two kids, but he's showing up every day and he's making calls. He's going to four nights a week. He's going to shows. He's giving it his best for, for the artists that are on our roster. If you can think in that mindset, I think it'll just help. It doesn't mean that, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's such a, it's a crazy business. So, and more people don't have success than do have success. So there's a lot to complain about. Uh, but I think if you can kind of sympathize with like what's happening for your managers or for your label or whatever, um, it'll also help you understand better the things that you can be doing to kind of get the most out of the, those people that are working on your team. So it was, it's been a super interesting process being on the business side and constantly makes me laugh about things that I maybe had done when I was younger on the musician side with like complaining to managers or being upset with managers and letting them know <laughs> sometimes, you know, uh, yeah. and then being on the other, being on the other end of that call where somebody's on the road, like calling me upset about something that didn't happen, you know, as a kid, but, uh, it's, it's a fun process to be on both sides. I think if you're willing to kind of understand what the suits as people, as like, I feel like the normal musician would be like, ah, oh, the corporate suit guy didn't, he's screwing this all up. Like, if you're more willing to understand, like, what they're going through and, like, they're fighting battles, too. I mean, it might not be, like, sleeping in the back of a van, but like you said, you, you'll you be able to communicate better if you understand, like, their processes and, you know, the kind of hurdles that they have to jump over to, like, do things for you. Um, I, I think it's great to get to get a piece of both, even if you're just, like, you know, listening to, to a podcast. Maybe you don't, you're a kid, you don't want to, like, work at a label, but, like, learn some stuff about what's going on over there so you can work together as opposed to having somebody be the bad guy. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, like, like two examples are like when I showed up to LA, I kind of thought I was like good at drumming, you know, like <laughs> I, I'd like to think I'm humble, but like, whatever. I was like, I can play all these notes. Like I'm good, dude. Let's Check go. Me out. You know? And I had to like learn that that's like not really what it's about. And it was kind of like, that was like my day one of learning to get to the point where I'm still growing, but you know, like I had to go through those first two years of like, no, no, no. Like you're not there yet. Meanwhile, you, we think that we hit this thing. We're like, now I know now I've made it right. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true. I think a lot of people think, you know, the old thing where like you get your record deal and then if that's like day one of working when you get signed, that's like when it starts. Yeah. yeah. And there's just so much, you know, and it's tough. I've been there too, where it's just like as a musician or artist, you're just like, I want to just relax. Like, when is it, when am I not still pushing? But the reality is, is the ones that are always still pushing are the ones that are, that are having the most success. So there's never that moment where you're stopping, you know, you have a top 10 hit and you're like grinding to try to write another song or to get everyone at the label still jazzed or to like still keep making fans. I think a lot of artists could use taking some time to really understand how the, the ecosystem that is music works, you know, yeah. like why do certain artists get on playlists? Why certain artists don't, 
how does you know Spotify operate? How does YouTube operate? What can I be doing to like get the most out of my act? Because again, it's it's easy to complain, and I see a lot of it on on social media with my friends and stuff. But what where would we be without you know kind of segueing? But where would we be without Spotify or DSPs? Yeah. They've kind of reintroduced at a time where post Napster, you know, they've reintroduced to the public at large, the idea that they are willing to pay for music. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. There's tons of things that we could improve, but people from, you know, which unfortunately young blood was kind of caught in that section. Like if, if we had the success we had had maybe in the late nineties or maybe more today, we would be in a whole different part of life financially That's um, true. than being a band in the late, you know, it's not aughts, whatever, like, you know, when we were like early 2010s, you know? So the idea that people are willing to pay for music is valuable. And then we're still growing music modernization act, all these things that we're trying to do that will help. But the fact is, is that there's independent artists doing better now than they've ever done in the history of music. You're, you know, at the same time, it's harder to make noise than it's ever because there's whatever, 60,000 songs go up every week. On yeah. Spotify. So, yeah. Or, or, yeah. So, every, um, every day, I think. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 60,000 a day. It's just insane. But the more that you can learn and understand it, then the more you can, you can maximize and get everything you want out of it. You know, you can't just, you know, if they release Imagine tomorrow without the right marketing plan, nobody's going to care and nobody's going to hear it. Yeah. You know, Pet, Pet Sounds comes out two Fridays from now. I'm never going to know. I'm not even going to care unless the right plan and the right marketing. And so just like, it's easy to complain about social media. And I like to do that too, for fun, just on a Friday night. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it is the world that we live in. So I just want to keep making music and keep being a part of other artists making music. So unfortunately, like I'm on Facebook business manager, trying to learn how to create ads or like understanding what the hell a pixel is, you know? Do I want to be doing that? No, I kind of want to just play some drums, but, uh, but that's just the, that's just kind of the level. And if you're willing to commit to that, those are the people that have success, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's great independent artists right now that are putting in that time that if you're not willing to do that, your music could be better per se or whatever, but they're working if you're not. So you might as well work too. There's so many things in there that I wanted to touch on. That was all, that was all great. But you know, one of the questions I have here, which I think ties in with all that, we've worked together on a lot of releases. I know you you did a lot of that uh, with Big Deal and, and post Big Deal. What are your thoughts on like passive playlist listeners versus like focused fan growth? Like, I feel like there's a fine balance between you have to have both and you know, you have to have fan growth, but you also need that discoverability. Like, do you have any advice or tips for people in, in that space? Um, I think every situation is different. My real answer is I don't know. I'm learning every day and I'm trying new things. I think if somebody tells you that they do, that, that, you know, I don't know, I'd question it a little bit. If you're at a major or you have a lot of backing, there's things that you would do differently than if you're a complete independent artist. It's a balance. I think it's a balance. At the end of the day, I want, whenever I'm talking to artists, because it's just so like we live in that world. So we like, oh, I would love to get on new music Friday or whatever playlist, you know, new music daily on Apple music, like all these things that we feel like are going to make it right. But yeah. they, you're right. They're very passive. I'd like to think that if your music is good enough, you want to get on there so bad because then you have a shot. And if you b really believe in your music, then it's going to go from passive to people that become super fans. But 
regardless of how you're operating, I think fans is, is the thing that I always circle back with is just like, we have to, to find like your first 100 fans, your first a thousand fans and just really hone in on that. But that yeah. said, like those playlists, I mean, I found bands that I really like on playlists. Me I'm too. sure you have too. Yeah. So it's, it's important, but there's a balance and I'm always, you know, the, there's a third party playlisting situation. That's like, that's a whole thing. Um, and it can be positive and negative and, and it's hard to really know. It's kind of like this weird ecosystem that exists on Spotify. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of, it feels slimy sometimes with certain curators, but it also can be effective. So, and it also keeps people, it's like this whole game that keeps people on the platform. So I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think it's, it's okay. I, I think it could be improved, but in terms of playlisting versus fans, your goal is fans. So yeah. if you can, but you sprinkle in some passive playlisting to get fans. Also, it's a data-driven world, but the right people who you would want to to come and approach you for your project and be a part of your team, like a good label or, you know, any of the other things, a good manager, if you don't have a manager, uh, everybody's seeing that data. And we can read between the lines. If you have like, you know, 50,000 followers on Instagram, but each of your posts gets two likes or whatever, or if you have a song on Spotify that has a hundred thousand streams, but your monthly listeners are like 200 and you have two followers like, Oh, okay. They bought some streams for that. Like you can see that. But that said, if you're doing like this wide spread of a little bit of everything in your, and it's focused, then like raising those numbers is important and can be helpful. Cause we're all, you know, when I click on an artist, I don't know if there's a song that has over a million plays, you know, for better or worse, that's the song I want to click on. You know, just to see that because that's what, okay, that's what everyone else likes. This, this might be the best that they have to offer. And then, then I'll go down from there. I mean, you know, I'm not, not like ashamed to say that I do that. And so, you know, it's just a balanced approach, but as long as you are thinking about core fans who would go see your show, who would buy merch and, and that's where you're trying to get to, there's so many different paths you can try to take. But if, as long as that's like the goal, the end of your little maze that you're running towards, you, you can find your way, but yeah. And don't be afraid to try things. You know, I've had, I've had, I've done some things that just didn't work. You're like, well, that didn't work guys. Let's keep going. Let's yeah. take another, another at bat. Like let's another swing, you know? Well, and but, you've probably tried things that worked with one artist that didn't work with another artist and vice versa. I would imagine. For sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. Nothing is, it's never the same lane twice. It has to be for each artist. You can't just like plug in a system. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I agree. Since we're, we're talking about releases. So since we're talking about releases, is there one or two things that you see a lot of artists make a mistake in their release prep or like any pitfalls that you think people can avoid anything you can help people skip out on? I think that there's this fascination with like just throwing songs up. And I think what people are missing, especially more like independent artists, is they're not realizing that some of that stuff is calculated and it may feel like, oh, I just decided to drop, like if you're using that word, like I dropped a track or dropped an album. There's a lot that goes into that, you know? And th- it's not just, generally speaking, it's not just like, hey, I want to throw this up tomorrow. It's, yeah. it's still like behind the scenes, there's this whole calculated plan. So I think it can look like that 
Um, and so now a lot of artists are just like, Hey, I finished this song. It's rad. I want to release it in two weeks. And it's like, you know, you have to build out this ecosystem. So I think like releasing a song properly and you read these like suggestions on all these like cool blogs or, or things like Ari's take or all these different like platforms that are like trying to help independent musicians like CD baby or TuneCore have these like best practices or any distribution does, right. you know, and it's easy just to see that and kind of like dismiss it. But the reality is, is like getting everything prepped, all your assets six weeks in and like letting that marinate. Because again, back to the thing with the person working in the office on the music business side is like, if you're releasing a song in August, that person might be on vacation, you know, like with their family and just like understanding that process to where if I have six weeks, you know, hopefully the people that I really want to hear this music are not on vacation for six weeks. I have six <laughs> weeks worth of time. You know, yeah. oh, my song is the best. They didn't respond to me in one day. You know, the reality is that we're all human beings. Like, you know, maybe like my kid had a soccer game that day, or maybe like I also still play drums, you know, whatever, weirdly, like on the weekends and I play in a bar band or something like that. And I'm just, I just missed that, that record, you know, yeah. that time you sent it. So I think that's the biggest thing is just putting like, putting, giving the time and, and delivering all the assets. Um, the other thing is, is that video can be so expensive and it's like the, it's kind of like this rough situation for indie artists, but people see a lot with their eyes. So, or sorry, they hear a lot with their, obviously they see with their eyes, but <laughs> people hear with their eyes. So we live in such a, like a visually stimulated world with TikTok and Instagram and all the YouTube and all that, that having video content, but not just having it to have it have it and have it make sense. And that can be done cheap. It can be done with you and your iPhone, but like putting in the time to like really making it great to have those visual assets to go with the audio and like good artwork. And then, you know, just like realizing that it takes, it takes a lot. And then like the first day of the record deal, that's day one of the work. The release isn't all done the day the song comes out. That's the first day of the work to promote that song. And so it is like, you know, I've been tired sometimes where it feels like this carrot that's on, you know, on a stick in front of me and I'm like constantly chasing it and never getting it. But, um, but I think you have to think of that. You have to just make sure that you're pushing, that it's prepped, everything's perfect, but then still on release day, that's the beginning. And then like, what are you going to do? And, yeah. and just make, make a timeline, make a list, like do all those things that, that like you would have a label do, do them yourself because at the end of the day if you don't know how that works anyways then a label is going to give you a marketing plan that's going to be not that great because they don't really know you so most of the label marketing plans are like no 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 i'm not okay with that but let's do that and you know there's great marketing people at labels there's amazing ones but it doesn't always fit each project so you have to you have to under you have to go through that and understand it in order to get the most out of your label when you do sign a deal so you know yeah well, they're yeah. working with a bunch of people and they don't know them personally. It's not like generally you're not sitting down in front of your marketing person having a conversation if it's your first record deal. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a process. And, and, the, and, you know, what's cool about today is that like the downside is that everyone will be like, oh, labels are data driven. Like you're, you're doing all the work, you're building it, you're getting like these followers or this fan base or, or a lot of times even these streams and then labels are copping on and then throwing gasoline onto the fire. But also like 
you can look at it in a positive to where like you're fully creating this entity that is you. You know, with Bishop, it was just insane what her and George did to like to have this fully realized character. Yeah. With like, you know, like I talked to somebody and it was just like, yeah, uh, who was at a who's in the industry who was for, like, yeah, I really wanted to sign it because it was like this trap Adele thing that like everyone was obsessed with. Like people were just like, oh my god, and but like the visuals and the videos and the aesthetic and her hair and and like becoming this sort of little character logo thing. Like everything was so calculated and thought through. No wonder the labels were there to sign up because all it was is like, this is already working. We just take this and put it into our system and it's great. We don't have to versus like, oh, I'm like a kid who I have great music and I'm a great singer or songwriter, but like, what's, what's the angle, you know? Um, And that's kind of like, can be, can be discouraging because it's not just about the music in that sense. But again, yeah. that comes back to just understanding the world because there's amazing songs that I would love to hear, but I just don't have time. Like yeah. when I go on Spotify, I find so many good songs all the time or Apple music. And I'm just like, like there's playlists on Apple music that I love that I, that I always find new bands in, but that I just don't have time to listen to it. There's more good music than I have time to listen. That's true. That's true. It, I wanted to just jump back really quick that, you know, you talk about somebody like Bishop that had such like, you know, she knew what she wanted to do. She knew what it looked like. She knew what it was and they presented it like on the other side of that. Like if you are, you know, an amazing performer, you've got great songs, labels are interested, you sign your deal, but you don't know like who you are as an artist. Like you're never going to find yourself because they're going to be pushing and pulling you. But, but when you sign an artist like, Bishop, like you don't have a meeting to talk about like what kind of artist you are. You're like, okay, this is, this is what you are. Now we're going to cater to that. So like, if you, you have to know who you are and like what your brand is and what you're like, you know, you have to know who you are before you can expect these labels to help you as well. Otherwise you're just going to end up confused. For sure. Because then you're in a meeting with like 15 different people who are all great or can be great, but they, like, they don't know, you know, yeah. versus like, oh, well, like one of them be like, I think we should you know, this is what you should wear or these, like, it should all be black and white or it should be bright colors. You know, mm-hmm. with Youngblood one time we had a, we had a photo shoot. We like get there and we're all wearing pastel colors and there's like these fake palm trees. And we were just like, what the heck is going on? We, like, as soon as we walked in, we were like, well, we just spent 10 grand on this sick uh, we're not going to use any of it. And we knew, and we just had to sit there and do it just to like, whatever. But you know, that was just a situation. And that happens regardless of what you're doing, you know, like that can happen to anybody, but the more that you know what you want to do and what you don't want to do, the less likely you are to be in those situations. Yeah. And and look, that money has to be recouped. So then, you know, like the, the more likely you are to have success financially and creatively is, is to like fully realize your, process but also being open because labels have some great ideas i've seen many things where many instances where it's like an idea was brought in and it was just like oh that's so perfect like that fits fits the vibe you have to be open to the ideas that they can bring in but if you're expecting them to figure out who you are and what you're kind of i don't i like using the word brand but everybody does that but like what your aesthetic is yeah aesthetic's a good word you go from like you said you go from having meetings where people are presenting you amazing ideas that fit you versus having meetings where people are throwing out stuff that's completely unrelated to who you are because nobody knows who you are and 
you don't you can't even stand up for yourself. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into uh, you know, make making it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you got to do and think about. Um, but we're we're running low on time. We haven't talked about artist perspective. Is there anything you want to tell us about I know you're still like getting that crank in. You get you're doing a little bit of work of a few artists, but what's the what's the goal? Would you, anything you want to tell us? One thing that I was really surprised about when I started working in the industry is how much satisfaction I took from like just being behind the scenes and helping another artist kind of like realize their or not necessarily realize, but like putting their putting their music out into the world and realizing their art their dream of being an artist, I should say. So, um, it's, it's just been really fun and management is just kind of can be grueling and, and, and it's, it's, again, it's like a a ton of work for both the artists and myself. And so the idea with artist perspective was just to build out the team. I have a few other friends who I think I'm obsessed with the idea of like working with people who've kind of been through it so that we can kind of avoid some of those pitfalls of people that haven't. So, and I know a lot of great musicians and people that work in the industry that are hardworking people that want to learn. And this is a way to maybe like, if you're trying to get off tour to kind of like be a part of something. So I have a few friends that, that are helping me with, with artist perspective. And it's just about trying to build out the team because it takes a village to get anything off the ground. It's predominantly a management company, but I'm also obsessed with just like what it takes to break an artist because I feel like, and maybe I'm just too much of a fan of people that I work with, which is hopefully the case. Um, but hopefully I'm not the only fan of people that I work with, but, um, I think that I know just some great artists and I have some amazing artists making amazing music. And like I said about, you know, imagine being released today or pet sounds being released tomorrow. Like the job then becomes, how can we make as much noise as possible? So the label services aspect of artist perspective is, is just my journey to like, to know exactly things that we can do that help. Obviously Mm -hmm. each artist and each release will have its own separate plan and and things that cater to it. But it's just the idea, the artist perspective is the idea that, that we're always thinking about what they're going through. That's kind of the idea of the name and having it be a company versus like, Oh, my name's Nick and I manage some artists is just about bringing in a bigger team because it takes a team to do it right. Yeah. And then having our own label services is just because I'm obsessed with this idea that like, if we can do it ourselves, we should just do it ourselves. The minute you play the telephone game, the minute I involve, um, and there's a, again, there's amazing labels. I'm not taking anything away from that, but the minute you start having other people on the chain of this telephone game, you're filtering down your process a little bit. So if you have an artist who's like fully knows what they want to do, and this is how you want to do, then like, how can we execute this as streamlined as possible? That's always rooted in the idea that this artist is trying to find this fan and what's the fastest way between these two parts. And then how can we make that fan a super fan and just like obsessed with that artist the way it's so crazy to me to be on tour with Bush and see these fans that come out every year and that know everybody they knew me like in the first week and, and I'm just like, what? And they were so nice to me, which is amazing. The idea that they just like every summer they go see Bush and they come in multiple cities and all that, like, you know, new artists, like getting that bond, that bond is like key. And yeah. so that's, yeah, that's kind of the mission statement on it. It's just to really like be thinking about what the artist needs and, and how we can kind of get there. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, 
I'm excited. I know some of the people you've been working with, and they're all, like you said, monstrously talented. So, but that's awesome. Uh, so I hate to wrap it up because I honestly, I would keep talking. I feel like you've had so much stuff for so many people. Like I could, keep, I would love to keep going on releases in business, but I've got two questions that I ask everybody at the end. First one is, was there a time in your career up until this point that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Ooh, um, that's a good question. I don't know if redefining it is exactly the right word. So for the longest time, I've always said that my only goal is to just keep doing music for a living. And now that I have kids, it's like, if I can just support my family with music, how freaking cool is that? It doesn't have to be like Hollywood Hills glory. So that's what I've always said. But if I'm being really honest, when Youngblood had that success, it was really hard to not buy into the to the hype. And we just thought it was so fast, so quick. We thought it was just going to be forever. And then when that didn't happen, you know, when we got dropped from the label and and it just didn't seem to kind of, we still make music together. Obviously, everybody's doing different things now. So it's not quite what it was. We didn't, we never broke up, but it just stopped being an outlet that could be a full-time thing for all of us. And when that happened, having just had so much success in the three-year run that we had had, it was just like, yeah, it kind of just reaffirmed the idea of like doing everything just, just to like keep that party going per se, you know, <laughs> because it was just like, oh, that one song, that's not, that's not, there's not going to be one moment that's going to be, I'm going to be set for life you know, and, and, it, and like, it really like came through to that. Like, Oh, you can have a platinum selling record and you can be like, and it can feel great and everybody loves you. And then, then it just kind of like fades, you know, um, not for any one specific reason or not because the label didn't do a good job or not because we didn't, you know, we felt we had some good music, but it just didn't like, there's so many different keys to it. And so that was a really like tough thing to swallow. Yeah. And just like really understand that. But then again, when you break through that and then, then that next gig happened or the next MD thing happened for me, then it was just like, Oh, okay. Well, I could still do it. You know, it's just one project and we'll learn off of it the same way that it was just like for the boys in Youngblood, Igloo and Hartley felt like their project. And then, then that faded. And then they started Youngblood. It was like this whole other renewed energy. And for Sam, who I manage, who's who's with Artist Perspective in my management, he has a project called Sunshine Boys Club that's doing some amazing stuff. He's such a talented person and artist, um, musically and visually. So no, you know, this is our opportunity to work together to like just keep keep the party going and keep keep creating and keep making music. And so that's kind of the. I guess that's sort of my answer is that, yeah, we, you eat a lot of humble pie throughout the years, <laughs> but as long, I think as long as you can kind of keep going, that's always been my goal. That's awesome. No, I, I love that. That's, that's really good. Uh, it's a good point. Yeah. The, the highs are high and the lows can be low and you're going to hit all of them on your journey. That's for sure. You just yeah. gotta keep, keep going. And then, uh, the last question that I close every show with, what is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? <sighs> I love that you do these things. I should have thought about this answer more. Um, <laughs> my next biggest goal is to have an artist on the management side that's like fully functioning in an album cycle, meaning that like they're releasing music, they're going to radio, whether it's independently or with a label, just doing it within our own team with obviously a lot of help from external people. But like, 
like whether it's Sunshine Boys Club or, or Emily's new project, Bluebird, or Tempo Slow, or Corey Britz, who you know is our friend who has his own project, with any of the people that I work with, I want them to be going through the full full thing, which is easier said than done, but that includes touring. Like I want all of my artists on the road. I want them like doing radio hits, like interviews during the day, because for some of the artists and in, in projects that I've been a part of, that's like, so it's such a fun experience. And that's how you get fans by doing yeah. it all. It's really hard to get fans in just doing one aspect. Um, but there's a lot that goes into it, finding an agent, getting on the right tours, getting you know, having enough success at streaming or, or sync that you can, that you can afford to put this band together and and get on the road or all the little things that have happened. But that's my biggest goal is for one of the artists that I manage to do some of the cool things for them to go through that experience that I've gone through. And some of them have obviously, uh, about the names that I've, you know, the artists that I work with have actually all kind of done it a lot (laughs) in, in one way or another. Um, but for like these specific projects for me to do it in this sort of capacity, that's my biggest goal. And what am I doing to get there? I'm reading every single night and I'm like talking to every day. I talk to somebody I'm on forums, you know, artist management collective forum on Facebook, you know, I'm on slacker just in different rooms, just like there's not a day that goes by that. I'm not thinking about things that I can be doing that I can learn. Because I really do think that my the artists that I work with are all could be super successful. The difference between their success and not success is me knowing how to get them there. So if I just focus on that, then we can party. You know? Yeah, we can have the mar- we can have the Silver Lake margaritas before we even know how to play the song. Or, That's right. Or we can be you know bush with like fans that have been coming to see them every summer for twenty five years. You know, it's so. awesome. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. I love I love that. Um, is there anything you want to share with people on where they can find you if if they want to chat music or if they're looking for some session drumming? You want to share websites or anything with people? Uh, yeah, my websites probably could use some up to date uh, <laughs> things, but yeah, I mean, I'm Nick Hughes Drum. It's Nick N I K Hughes Drum on all the social media sites. Um, Artist Perspective is artistperspective.io. Um, we're a small company, so there's not a whole lot of stuff on there. And and again, we're not there to like be flashing about how cool we are as a management company. It's a pretty simple site with a contact email because again, it's like we only want to work with a few select clients and we just want to be hyper-focused on how to get them to the next level. With my drumming side, I do a lot of remote sessions, so there is that. Thank you for bringing that up. Nick Hughes drum is probably way out to date. I think it says that I play with Bush on there. I think I did update that part, but but yeah, you can find me on there and, and, you know, yeah, hit me up. I love to, to chat. I love meeting new people and learning new things. Awesome. Dude, thanks for taking the time, man. This was great. I, it's like, I almost wish it was like two episodes, one whole, one whole episode about, you know, being a player and being a drummer and one whole episode about like managing and, and releasing music, but I'll just, I'll make you come back in, in like a year and a half. How about yeah, that? for sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Travis, for having me, man. I really appreciate it. So that's it for episode 49. Thanks to Nick Hughes for coming on the show. And as usual, thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thanks to those of you that sent in some booze for the intro. Had fun with that. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's what potential guests will look at when they consider coming on the show. Also, remember, we do have a Patreon set up now for any of you who are interested in supporting the show in that manner. It is greatly appreciated. 
And finally, jump over to completeproducer.net and get in on the conversations there. And I'll see you next week.